Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. On this episode of Most Notorious, a medieval murder mystery, who murdered Sir William Cantaloupe? They went down to the stables and got a sack for the body, drew water from the well, brought it into the kitchen, boiled the water in the kitchen, brought the water back up to the bedchamber, washed the body in the water so that uh, to stop the wounds, so that when they put the body in the sack, the wounds wouldn't bleed and give them away. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenes. Thank you for joining me. So before I get started, a quick update about something I had mentioned I'd been thinking about doing. Um, th- this was a few months ago. I can't remember exactly which episode I-, I said this in. But I'd been kicking around the idea of replacing or redoing the first dozen or so Most Notorious episodes. Well, I got a lot of responses from you. And the vast majority of them, the message was, leave them the way they are. They are part of the history of the show. Well, this is a show about history, I guess. I don't want to be accused of being a revisionist. (laughs) So I will let them be. So thank you to everyone who shared their feelings about this idea with me. And things are staying put for the time being. Well, let's get on with the show. I'm very pleased to have as my guest today, Melissa Julian Jones. She is a history teacher at Cardiff University, a historian who specializes in medieval networks, family power, and strategy in the 13th century. And her book, which of course she is here to discuss, is called Murder During the Hundred Year War. The Curious Case of Sir William Cantaloupe. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much for inviting me. Sure. So what is it that interests you about this time period? Yes, I've always been fascinated in uh, the 13th century or, you know, the the part that we call the High Middle Ages in um, when you're talking about Wales and England, uh, mainly because I grew up in Wales and there are so many castles here locally. Um, most of them are from, uh, most of the stone castles date from the 12th and 13th century. And those are the ones that you can go around. And there, um, we've got Caffili Castle really close by. And that's one of the best examples of a concentric castle in Europe. So we're really lucky just to have that on our doorsteps. And uh, I've just grown up fascinated by 
the well, particularly Welsh history and the cantaloupes that um, I wrote about for my thesis were a family of Norman or Anglo-Norman lords who moved into Wales fairly late in their careers and they gained lands in the march through marriage and they are part of the sort of tapestry of colonisation and colonialization of Wales by Anglo-Normans and the English. So that's a really, it's just a very interesting time period to me. And as I was researching that family um, a little bit for my uh, sort of PhD, which I fell into. <laughs> um, I was I was thinking about doing a number of topics for my PhD, and I I, I really love doing uh, sort of looking at social networks, and um, just it was just interesting to me to see how the family strategy evolved for knightly families, and I did a comparison basically, as my thesis between a family that was new to Wales and a family that had been established on the Welsh border for some time. And I was looking to see um, what their similarities were and what their differences were. And one of the families was the Cantaloupes. And I noticed that they were just a very colourful group of people to <laughs> in their own right. Um, and so the book, uh, Murder During the Hundred Years' War, which is set sort of 1375 or focused on 1375 is uh, a little bit out of my comfort zone being the 14th century but it was just such an interesting murder uh, so yeah once you get into it it's just a, a really interesting thing and obviously it's set much more in England being in um, um, in Lincolnshire so that again is uh a little bit out of my comfort zone um, because I focus mainly on the Welsh borders and Wales. Um, but it's just fascinating to see how the family, even though at that point they didn't have any lands in Wales anymore, still kind of um, benefited from social networks that their their sort of ancestors had cultivated. Um, so yeah, so uh, I've just always been interested in medieval history, but there's just so much to be fascinated by. Absolutely, yeah. So the Hundred Years' War is in the title of your book. So so maybe we can talk about that first. Maybe if you wouldn't mind summarizing the war. Where in the war does this story take place, and how is this story connected to the war? Yeah, so it's um, the Hundred Years' War was um, not an ongoing conflict. It was a series of conflicts with a number of truces. There were lots of different campaigns. It began in 1337 and it was to do with dispute between uh, the French Royal House of Valois and the English Royal House of Plantagenet about the succession of the French throne. So you have a number of battles and a number of campaigns where the English go into France so you have people who are veterans of certain campaigns coming back for later campaigns. It's also where a lot of the knightly class sort of cut their teeth in their first campaigns, uh, sort of the first military action that they get uh, when England is not at war with Scotland as well. So you have the Earl of the March, for example, led his first campaign in France when he was 17. And that's the one that uh, William Cantaloupe, who is the subject of the book and was murdered in 1375, um, that's the campaign that he was present on. 
so the the Hundred Years' War is a constant backdrop, and for the knightly class at the time, that that's kind of the main source of action that they got. You also had campaigns in Scotland and a couple in Ireland as well, I think. But you have, uh, um, and also the Iberian Peninsula, but you've got the main bulk of the action for William Cantaloup would have been in France. And so a lot of the major kind of events that shaped his life happened around the time of that campaign. Um, And then he disappears from the records um, after being brought home from that campaign. And uh, he was actually arrested for the murder of his brother um, and brought back to the Tower of London. And that ended his career as, uh, you know, his sort of his military career. He then disappears from the records for about four or five years until he's found dead in a ditch. So that's the that's the context to this, really. And that's kind of where the title comes from. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. You, you do go into in some detail his relationship with his brother, Nicholas. Oh, yeah. C- could you tell us more about this? Why would he have been accused of murdering his brother? Well, um, so this is a very complicated chapter in Cantaloupe history. Um, so you have um, the two brothers. Nicholas is the older brother. Um, there's only a few years between them. They're not. Um, there's there's not a big age gap. There's only like a th- three or four years between them. So um, their grandfather was called. So all of the cantaloupes are called Nicholas or William, right? Just assume that if we're talking about a cantaloupe in this in these few generations, they're either called Nicholas or William. Um, so grandfather Nicholas was a diplomat, a spy, um, had a very successful military career. He um, just was one of those disguised as a monk, I think, who <laughs> broke into a, a castle in Scotland. There's all these stories about him. And he was the one who kind of restored Cantaloupe family fortunes, if you like, after the failure of the male line uh, for the main branch of the family, which resulted in all of the cantaloupe lands uh, that weren't held by the cadet branches being handed off among other families um, that had married into the cantaloupes. Um, So Grandfather Nicholas was kind of set on um, making the cantaloupe reputation uh, again. Um, He was close with the king and he he had a, a a big reputation sort of among the his fellow elite and it was decided for some reason and I'm not reading too much into this because other families do it as well to skip his son William and hand over directly the title and the bulk of the lands to his grandsons Nicholas and William I told you they're all called Nicholas and William so hopefully you're following this um so Father William, Nicholas's son, had a good whack of inheritance. He wasn't kind of shortchanged. He'd made a good marriage. And he and his wife and his stepmother, which was Nicholas, grandfather Nicholas's second wife, had the lands in trust, if you like, um, while the little boys grew up. And they were the ones that uh, kind of administered that until the children came of age. So we get to our William, who, <laughs> who is, I think, 11 when his granddad died and he inherited, um, 
you know, set to inherit his share uh, when he came of age. Um, and Nicholas, his brother, who um, <laughs> William's accused of murdering, was about 13, 14. So they, we don't know very much about their childhood. We do know that they would have been prepared to take over their lands and estates. Um, we do know that knightly children uh, were trained in different arts of war, uh, hunting, various things like that from a very young age. Um, and also marriage was a big thing. So <laughs> so local heiresses were suggested. And for Nicholas, who was going to inherit the title, he was betrothed to Catherine Paynell, whose father was a very important man in the locality. And that seems to have been all right for all of them. Catherine was a few years younger than Nicholas, so um, they had to wait until Catherine came of age before they could actually get married um, legally, properly, um, and she had to consent to it. That all seemed to go all right, but just before the wedding, Catherine apparently was speaking to one of Nicholas's kinswomen who said, my lady, I'll give you a penny if you ever have joy of your husband. And Catherine didn't know what this meant until the wedding night when Nicholas was really not interested in her at all. Um, and Catherine didn't know why this was and was very upset. So this is where it gets both murky and, uh, so, well, disturbing. Um, so Nicholas made it very clear he wasn't uh, interested in sex and Catherine waited until he was asleep and then put her hand between his legs to see if she could arouse him. And that's when she claims that she felt nothing at all there. So she's not saying that she felt what she would describe perhaps as female genitalia. She's saying that she didn't, uh, she didn't really know what she was feeling, if you like. So there was a, an inquest to determine if the marriage could be annulled. And this is part of her testimony. So it's very difficult to tell retrospectively whether Catherine was, uh, you know, for example, telling the truth or what she was describing or, you know, if she didn't have she didn't have vocabulary to describe things. And you're working within a medieval framework that um, doesn't allow for the vocabulary for, say, intersex people or, um, you know, so it's 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 a. It's a problematic series of texts to work with, um, but uh, essentially, um, that's what her testimony was. Um, she tried to get an annulment straight away, but was persuaded to stay with Nicholas for a couple of years to see if to see if marital affection would grow between them. Um, apparently, it did not. Um, and so she left uh, Nicholas's house when the two years was up to go back to live with her parents. Um, Nicholas did not want her to pursue an annulment. Point blank refused to have a physical examination and sent a group of armed men to fetch her back. He then threatened her with incarceration and showed her the leg irons that he was going to use on her if she didn't basically say that her testimony was false and take it back and she also he he 
dragged her into the chapel in front of witnesses and made her swear on the Bible that they had um, had sex and that there was nothing different about him um, and that he was capable of getting her with child. And so she swore those oaths to him under duress and um, he brought this up in court that she'd sworn these oaths and um, her one of her priests confessors said well that doesn't count because she was under duress when she swore them um so it took a very long time but nicholas was uh nicholas and catherine's marriage was annulled um by the bishop in the ecclesiastical court of york um nicholas then went uh, to see the pope in france and uh he was going to contest this annulment so he he was sort of going to go over the archbishop of york's head and go straight to the pope and while he was in France, he died, and the the symptoms looked suspiciously like arsenic poisoning. So the only person who was in France at the same time was William, his younger brother, who stood to inherit everything since Nicholas didn't have any children or any heirs, and William was his next heir. And so William was arrested for Nicholas's murder. He was then taken back to London and kept in the Tower of London for a few months. Um, It was then decided for some reason, and we're not sure why, that it wasn't arsenic poisoning at all. Nicholas had in fact died of natural causes and everything was dropped. William was let out and he was sort of never, he literally disappears from the records for four or five years until he turns up dead. So we don't really know what his relationship was like with his brother. While all this was going on, um, William had gone abroad to France on campaign. So this is one of the sort of slash and burn campaigns where the English army mainly engaged with the French peasantry while the French royal army held back and didn't engage with them. And the English army basically lived off the land and burned a lot of crops and... (laughs) So did whatever they wanted for a few months. And and then William was uh, on the king's business there for a, a little while after that as well, um, at the time he was arrested. So we don't know what his relationship was like with Nicholas growing up. While Nicholas's marriage was imploding, um, he wasn't there at all. So it's it's an interesting one. We It's something that uh, is a big gap in our knowledge about the family um, and there's sort of no sources that we can look at. So you just have to kind of uh, fill in that yourself and try not to come, jump to too many uh, conclusions. But basically that's the story of the two brothers. Interesting. And you do theorize in your book about the physical issue Nicholas might have been dealing with, right? Yeah, so um, it's difficult to... Um, I mean, a lot of articles about Nicholas as uh, and his annulment and that kind of thing do tend to pathologize his condition. And um, it's very, very difficult to retrospectively diagnose uh, somebody who you can't talk to um, or or see, you know, um, and especially at a time when the source material doesn't have the vocabulary um, to describe what's what's happening or what's what's going on with them um and also that person doesn't have the vocabulary that that we would recognize in the 21st century um to kind of use about themselves um or to identify so 
Yeah, so it's really hard. Um, it's it's likely, based on uh, the research of Frederick Peterson, that he possibly had a congenital adrenal hyperplasia is something that has been suggested. Um, and one of the symptoms of that is that you lose a lot of salt in your body, apparently. And uh, so you have to be careful about how much exercise you take and overexertion. And part of Peterson's argument is that this is potentially why Nicholas didn't have a military career himself and why he sent armed men out to get Catherine back. He didn't go himself. Um, And it's also one of the reasons why he may have died in France and that the manner of death suggests that as well, because it's... um, gastrointestinal distress um, and the various symptoms that look like arsenic poisoning. So that's an interesting theory. One of the most likely ones, potentially. But again, it's, it's very difficult to know for sure. And as far as Nicholas's alleged uh, sexual limitations, is there a guess about that? What was going on there? Um, that's part of, um, so the fact that Nicholas had um, atypical genitalia is um, sort of obviously Catherine's own testimony. It's sort of suggested that he didn't have any testicles, that's what um, she said, and um, possibly a micropenis, basically. She said that it was as flat as the back of a man's hand, was what she described. Um, so she's not describing female genitalia. But um, he also is very tall and very deep voiced. And that's apparently the testicles then ascend after puberty, I think, or something like that um, with that particular condition. So, yeah, so that's um, that's one of the reasons that Pedersen has suggested that particular theory. So um, it's it's difficult to to say exactly again because Nicholas refused to have a physical examination they were very intrusive they were very embarrassing it would be a matter of public record and it's the kind of thing that if you're particularly proud or you know you just or just a very private person like it's it's really not uh, having you know sort of wise women fondle you and then uh, tell you off for not rising to the occasion is not something that uh um, anyone particularly wants to go through, I think. <laughs> so, right. Um, but which was part of it. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting that something like this was documented during the medieval era and still theorized about today. Yeah, it's it's part of. Um, uh, if anyone's interested, it's part of the um, the records of the ecclesiastical court of York. So it's kept in the archives and most of these are digitized um so this particular case is digitized it's in very some of it's in in uh, not great condition and it's not very easy to read obviously it's in medieval latin and in that particular kind of handwriting that scribal handwriting so um it is quite hard but you can access it online and you you can sort of look it up yourself as well but yeah, it's uh, it's amazing what has survived. Really, there's a there's a lot of detail. Yeah. So basically, there is a lot of drama going on in the Cantaloupe family, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, just a bit. Um, 
<laughs> and we don't know what anyone else thought of this. Um, so we don't really know what his father was doing at this time. We don't know I mean, whether he had paternal or, you know, sort of relational support. Um, we don't know. Uh, one of his kinswomen, as I said, I think was a witness for Catherine while the the situation was embarrassing and Catherine had uh, sexually assaulted him, essentially. Um, you've also got the fact that he had threatened her with incarceration and actual leg irons and shackles. Um, and so you have a very, very messed up kind of situation there where it's it's a very toxic environment, if you like, for both of them. And it's just a very, very difficult situation to, to kind of start to unpick so you don't really know what anyone is uh, what anyone is thinking. Um, we know that the Paynells um, immediately married Catherine off again to John Ornsell. And one of the first things they did as a newly married couple immediately after the annulment went through was to challenge William Cantaloupe um, as soon as he was released from prison and received his inheritance um, because he was not allowed to receive his inheritance until it was uh, decided that he was not guilty of murder. Um, that three castles that Catherine said uh, belonged to her should have been given back to her, but they weren't. Um, and it was found that the castles should be inherited by William because Catherine and John didn't have the so the right paperwork, if you like, to persuade the um, the the king or the king's representative in court that um, those castles actually did belong to Catherine. So that didn't go well. Um, so the Paynells, that the relationship that had been built up between the Paynells and the Cantaloupes by their grandfather, that was all completely gone now. And Ralph Paynell is not the kind of person that you upset. Um, so he'd been um, sheriff of Yorkshire for a few terms and had to answer for his excesses, you know, uh, sort of the corrupt sheriff stereotype, if you like, but generally means um, taking advantage of uh, various people and getting a lot of money that you shouldn't have. But yeah, so it's a very complicated situation. And also when William is released from prison and goes back to Lincolnshire, he enters a world where not only has his brother lost a lot of support, but there is now a lot of talk in the county about the family in general. And one of Catherine's, not witnesses, but um, so you're allowed to bring what's, I suppose, termed as common knowledge to court as evidence. And so the common knowledge of the county, which was established by the jury, was that Nicholas was impotent. And that means that everybody was discussing this prior to the annulment, prior to the court case. And so you have a situation where William comes back into this very kind of um, volatile I guess situation where the cantaloupes have lost a lot of lost a lot of face and lost a lot of reputation, but also lost a lot of allies. 
And he is married now. Um, We don't know when he got married. He may have got married before he went abroad, in which case he hasn't seen his wife for several years. But she, uh, she is Maud Neville. And the Nevilles and the Paynells are very good friends. And she's very good friends with Catherine Paynell. And she knows Ralph Paynell quite well as well. Um, who is kind of like a surrogate, um, who be, or who seems to have become a sort of surrogate father figure for her, um, which we can see through their interactions later on. So, so his wife is allied with his brother's enemy, essentially, and he's coming back not having really spent a lot of time with his wife and not having spent a lot of time in the county, and um, you know not having had much to do with the lands and estates there at all. And then, of course, four years later, he's killed. So, Right. It's, <laughs> yeah. Fascinating. Mm. That's the situation. Yeah. And we will be back after these messages. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906, when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Reva Steed's Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Reva Steed's the audiobook. Available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Things done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. And we have returned. So his body was found in an isolated place 
in the late spring of 1375, right? Yep, that's right. So um, early May, I think. Um, so it's discovered by some villagers of the village of Grayingham. And they raise the hue and cry because they basically find, if you find a body in the field, that's what you do. Um, they call the coroner. While they wait for the coroner, because the coroner's in Lincoln, they have to make sure that no people or animals disturb the body. You're supposed to leave it exactly where you found it, unless you're in London or, you know, a very busy street and the body's just lying in the middle of the road, in which case you've got to sort of get it out the way. But um, right. <laughs> <laughs> there's usually a house that people would bring it into that's a designated house um, and lay it out. But generally, you're supposed to leave it where it is. The coroner can have a look. Um, and the coroner came and established that, uh, established the identity of the body. Uh, he'd been there about three months, four months, maybe at that point. So you can imagine the state of it is not not particularly great. And identity was most probably established through what he was wearing but also if he did have any recognisable features that remained, that would be <laughs> helpful. But also the fact that um, he hadn't been seen for three or four months. So <laughs> so chances were, <laughs> um, yeah, so um, they established it was William Cantaloupe um, and uh, sort of went, oh, right, so, so where, uh, where was he last? Um, and he was at his wife's manor of Scotton, Lincolnshire, but his wife was not there. And so he'd been bearing in mind he'd been missing literally for, for three or four months. And she had, for some reason, packed up and left the manor abruptly, um, dismissed all the servants. And she was now in Caythorpe, which is a good, a good few miles away um, and staying with Sir Ralph Paynell. And she had with her her maid, Agatha, and uh, William's armour bearer, Richard Guise. So the coroner went, hmm, <laughs> this is suspicious. Sure. <laughs> so um, the sheriff of Lincolnshire at the time was Thomas de Kydale, um, who was a widower with a 10-year-old son at the time. And uh, he promptly arrested everybody, uh, and I mean everybody. So he, he arrested uh, Maud, Sir Ralph, on suspicion of aiding and abetting, obviously, Agatha the Maid, uh, the armour bearer Richard Guise, and then about 14, 13 other members of that household who had been dismissed, rounded them up uh, as, as much as he could, um, including the steward, and summoned them all to court. Um, and charged them with murder because William had been stabbed multiple times in the torso, and you don't need <laughs> you don't need really uh, to, <laughs> forensic expert to, to know how he died. Um, but yeah, so he was. Uh, so the coroner's report is that there were multiple diverse stab wounds to his chest area. So there were some who believed he had been killed by highwaymen, right? That's what it was supposed to look like, I think. Yeah, uh, and th that was discounted by the sheriff and the coroner fairly quickly because they didn't at any point seem to go looking for any, uh, you know, highwaymen or rogues that may have <laughs> been. Um, and these aren't, you know, these aren't sort of 18th century highwaymen. These are just sort of gangs of, gangs of people who would accost you. Um, they may well be landowners. <laughs> um, they may well be uh, members of the knightly elite. 
or they might be monks or they might be ne'er do wells from the local uh, <laughs> from the local village uh, it depends really but at um, at no point did they take that seriously the reason that it was suggested or that it was meant to look like that was because he was dressed in his riding clothes so he had his spurs on he had his belt on he had his shirt on but it was discounted fairly quickly probably because it should have been obvious that the clothes he was dressed in was not what he'd been killed in uh, because he'd been dressed after he'd been stabbed. Um, so there wouldn't have been blood on the shirt. There wouldn't have been the corresponding rips in the shirt. So that's a bit, I mean, how do you stab somebody <laughs> without getting blood on their shirt, you know? So, yeah. So were they able to find evidence that linked this murder to anyone in particular? Well, no. Well, this is the thing, because a lot of the servants didn't show up to their court dates and were declared outlaws. And then you have Maud, Lady Maud, who apparently gave testimony and explained what happened. So she apparently told the sheriff what had happened and this was presented to the jury and you only have her word for it. Can't be corroborated because everybody pleaded not guilty that came to court. And you can't tell a story if you're claiming that nothing actually happened, right? So Moore's story is that the actual place where the murder um, occurred was their bedchamber in Scotton Manor and uh, William got ready for bed and um, it was it was important that they knew because obviously he didn't have the last rites it was important that they knew sort of his last movements um, and it was established that he died at peace with God and the king which presumably meant that he was killed after he'd said his nightly prayers um, he was in his nightshirt and he had locked their chamber door for the night. Um, it was one of the very few rooms of the manor that would have had a lock uh, and a key. And the holders of the keys would have been um, the steward, the chambermaid and the chamberlain. So the steward doesn't live in the manor. The steward has his own, had his own house and um, sort of administered the estates and things um, and came in, but he didn't live there. Um, so he wasn't present. So you, you're down to two. I mean, the steward probably wouldn't have had keys to the chamber anyway. But Agatha, the maid, apparently was the one who gave the key to Richard Guise and Robert Cook. Uh, Robert Cook was the butler who was in charge of the butts of wine. That's where the name comes from. And Richard Guise, obviously uh, William's own armour bearer, squire. And they came in with Agatha's key and they stabbed him multiple times in the chest. They didn't kill or hurt Lady Maud. Um, then they decided they had to get rid of the body. So they went down to the stables and got a sack for the body, drew water from the well, brought it into the kitchen, boiled the water in the kitchen brought the water back up to the bedchamber, washed the body in the water so that uh, to stop the wounds so that when they put the body in the sack, the wounds wouldn't bleed and give them away. 
they then got out all of his riding clothes, his belt, his spurs, his boots, took all of that with them, saddled a couple of horses, put the body in the sack, put the sack on the horse, rode out. This is just two of them, apparently, and nobody else <laughs> rode out and, <laughs> uh, yeah, and uh, dumped the body in the night. They ride out about four miles and they, they dump out the body, uh, dress the body in the field and chuck it in the ditch, basically. And then they go home. And meanwhile, Maud is cleaning the bedchamber, presumably, and packing up the manor and everybody leaves. And Maud and Richard and Agatha go, the three of them, to um, Ralph Paynell, who's about something like 40 miles away, something like that. And that's where they stayed until the sheriff turned up to arrest them. And um, the sheriff obviously asked, said to, to, to Ralph, um, you know, why did you take them in when you clearly knew that she'd killed her husband? And Ralph said, well, I didn't know that. And I didn't know he was dead. And apparently hadn't bothered to ask where William was for the past three months and pleaded not guilty to, um, to aiding and abetting and said that he had, uh, he had no idea. So she double-crossed her co-conspirators, likely, right? Well, yeah. Or <laughs> I mean, there's a there's a lot. I mean, there's a lot you could assume from that. There's a few different um, scenarios I think that fit that, and one of them is certainly that um, perhaps she wanted William dead, and she got Richard and Robert to do it for her, and then she threw them under the bus. And that's that's a very likely scenario. Some pertinent information, perhaps, is that after the trial was done, she married the sheriff. <laughs> um, so, you know, there's there's that. And in the 1930s, when this case was first looked at by Rosamond Silum, who is a scholar who was interested in the in sort of Lincolnshire legal records of the Middle Ages, um, it was suggested that perhaps this was a love triangle and Silum, uh, Silum's theory was that Maud was having an affair with the sheriff to begin with, with Thomas de Kydale, who, you know, was a, a fairly well-known man in Lincoln. And um, her husband came back and made things very difficult for her. And so she and Thomas and Sir Ralph were all in it together um, and they coerced or bribed the servants to perform the deed and then they made sure that two of them hanged for it. Uh, meanwhile, all of the elite uh, got off. Um, so Ralph was found not guilty and Maud was also found not guilty. So that's that's an interesting theory. I mean, it should be noted that in the 1930s, you did still have live-in servants. And so perhaps the idea of the servants being behind it um, and conspiring together to kill their master was perhaps not a very palatable or popular idea. Um, And you also have a, a lot of the history being sort of top down, um, if you like, so so focused on the elite and not considering the peasantry so much, or not considering uh, sort of the lower classes so much, and so so it made more sense from that sort of perspective to assume that only the elites were capable of some sort of conspiracy. You know, only the elites would be uh, would would have motive or would be interested enough um, in, you know, 
removing William to, to go through this whole, you know, elaborate charade. And so that's that's been because that was suggested back in 1938, I think, that has become the most popular interpretation of the evidence. Um, Salem had absolutely no evidence at all that any affair was happening between Maud and Thomas Kydale, or that they even knew each other before the trial at all. Um, there's just nothing that I can see anyway to, to suggest that. The only reason she said that was because they got married afterwards. And there are, you know, and you could you could spin that a number of ways if you wanted to. If you're particularly romantic, you could say, oh, well, you know, maybe they fell in love during the trial and he did his whole sort of white knight routine. And um, or maybe Ralph Paynell, who was a much more important man than Sir Thomas Kydale was, pushed Maud at Kydale and went, well, she's now a widow and she needs protection. She wants, you know, she, she needs uh, to get married again. You're a widower why don't you get married? And that's what happened. You know, um, he died, Thomas Cardale died uh, in the Peasants' Revolt of 1381. So he didn't um, last very long after that, but that was nothing to do with Mort. Um, and she married again. And that this the third time she married, she married Ralph Paynell's nephew. So it does seem that, that Ralph Paynell maintained you know an, an interest and her father had died um some time ago so it seems that Ralph Paynell had kind of stepped in to be that sort of father figure for her and so, sort of arranging her marriages after the after the fact or at least was having some sort of behind the scenes influence there but you know that's just kind of one idea so you could have you could think about it as if it was a servant conspiracy and Maud didn't conspire with them to kill her husband, but they didn't kill her for reasons because perhaps she wasn't the one they had an issue with. But, you know, if somebody's got a knife and then says, you know, now we have to leave, but you have to take me with you, um, she's not going to say no, is she? So you've got that kind of interpretation, which is also possible. Or you have the other idea, which, I mean, if you look at medieval responses to domestic violence or things that the community deemed were too much or, you know, because domestic violence, unfortunately, in the Middle Ages was a fact of life. And also it was permitted um, up to a point. But if a community decided that somebody was being excessive, quote unquote, they would sort that out themselves. And it could get very, very violent. I mean, we're talking about uh, a society which was considerably, that the homicide rate was considerably higher than it was in the 1600s, say, which was about five times higher than it is today. So you're talking a very high rate of and not just um, not just sort of premeditated murder, but also accidental death during fights, so manslaughter. You know, um, it's a society where everybody is armed, and a lot of alcohol is being drunk generally, and <laughs> you know you've yeah. got people being trained to kill from a very young age. 
and people being very comfortable with death and being very used to death and also generally a lot of trauma. So people react to things in different ways. So that's the context of that. You also have a very homosocial environment. Um, So the household typically consists of teenagers or people in their 20s. Generally, it's predominantly men or young men. In this particular case in the household, Agatha was the only other woman in the household apart from Lady Maud. Everybody else was, uh, we don't know their ages, but the steward would have been an older man, the butler would have been slightly older, the pantler um, who takes care of the pantry would have been older, the cook would have been a bit older, but, you know, sort of 30s, 40s. You could have people as young as 14 working in a household um, and living in. So, so, so that's the dynamic that you've got. And seven of them, including Agatha, knew each other before they came to work for um, Lady Maud at Scotton because seven of them were servants of a neighbour of theirs, uh, of the Cantaloupes. And uh, if you're a career servant, you have a contract. And when their term of service ended, um, or he could no longer afford to to keep on a household of that size, he had to let them go. And so they went from his service into the service of William Cantaloupe. But very likely, it was not William who hired them. It was probably Lady Maud who hired them, because William was away. And um, Lady Maud uh, was the one who was in charge, if you like, while he was gone. Um, You also have the fact that Scotton Manor was a Neville Manor, not a Cantaloupe Manor. And so all the other servants are people that are known to Lady Maud. Her steward is her steward. He's a Neville man. He's not a Cantaloupe man. Um, He served the Nevilles for a really long time. He's probably known Lady Maud for, you know, since she was born. And William is staying there and is very much, you know, it is very much not his manor. It is not his lands. These are not his people. These are his wife's people. And so if he were to mistreat his wife in front of those people, or if he was to mistreat or to assault or to attack Agatha, who is the only other woman in the household, that again is a possibility because bearing in mind what the rumour of the county is about Nicholas, his brother, and the fact that he and Lady Maud do not have children. And it's quite possible that Lady Maud actually couldn't have children because she didn't have children with either of her other uh, two husbands after William. So if William felt like he had something to prove, one of the the nearest people to him was his wife's maid. And if the other servants didn't like that, or they deemed his treatment of Maud, you know, something they didn't like, they may well have taken it upon themselves to do something about that. But you can't do anything about it legally because William, as a member of the local elite, is also a member of that sort of legal class as well. And is it likely that anyone is going to take the servant seriously when, you know, how, how can you bring a charge against somebody who is basically in charge? You know, so it may be that they felt that they had very limited options. 
and it's it's very interesting uh, like you know the number of stab wounds as well he was unarmed at the time so either it was uh, an attack that was it was meant to be an attack that was unexpected because he was ready for bed so it was a time when they felt they could overpower him quite easily because he'd been trained to kill people since he was very small and you don't you know you don't attack a knight who's been on campaign and has done things you know without knowing that you could overpower him without some sort of some sort of an assurance that it's not going to go tits up basically <laughs> um but <laughs> I don't know if you can use that, <laughs> but it's not going to go horribly wrong for you. Um, right. So it's, it's again, that kind of attacking him at night and the diverse multiple stab wounds to the torso, uh, either perhaps indicative of somebody who really, really wants to make sure that he's dead or a very big kind of scuffle where he gets stabbed multiple times and, you know, he's, he's being it's their flesh wounds and you've got this big kind of fight going on with Maud presumably in bed watching it or it's somebody who's very very angry you know so, so you, can, you can interpret that evidence multiple ways we don't have a record of what the motive was meant to be and that's a key part of what we would consider today to be you know a key part of the evidence but that's not recorded in the trial records because that wasn't considered important because what was important to be recorded was who did it when did they do it how did they do it and what happened to them i.e. were they hanged were they you know incarcerated what that was it the how is kind of irrelevant unless it's directly related to um you know one of those factors i guess and for whatever reason that the the why wasn't recorded in this trial so yeah we will return after a quick break we are back again even if she hadn't known about the original plan she had to have known once it happened yeah. And, and it is revealing that she still didn't say anything. Yeah, yeah. Um it's so again you've got the you know is she involved or is she is it because of his treatment of her is it because she was the one that orchestrated the attack or is it because it's to do with uh, his treatment of Agatha and she doesn't like that either. You know and she's trying to protect. So Agatha is an interesting one because she is also very shadowy as a figure we know literally nothing about her apart from her name and the fact that she starts off as Agatha Frere she's recorded as Agatha Frere in the records and then for some reason and it's not said why or if she was if she suddenly got married while incarcerated we not entirely sure um it changes to Agatha Lovell so a totally different surname and that could be a scribal error or it could be that they just got her name wrong or that she got married and changed it at some point or she was betrothed to, we don't don't know um anyway agatha whatever her name was was in lincoln jail because obviously she was due to be tried for aiding and abetting for giving the key and she escaped uh, lincoln jail along with a couple of other prisoners and was never heard from again 
She was waived, which is the female equivalent of outlawed. Um, so the technical term if you're a woman is waived. And she doesn't appear again uh, in the records. So apparently they didn't catch her. And the bailiffs were tried to see if they had helped her escape or not. And it was found that um, she and a few other prisoners had escaped due to their negligence and not through their deliberate collusion. Whether that was whether that's an accurate finding or not is entirely <laughs> up to you, I guess. But yeah, um, she she was not able to be brought to trial because she just vanished. So if um, it was about Agatha, and if it was, um, you know, Maud was trying to protect her because she did take her with her. Uh, Maud did take Agatha with her to, uh, you know, Ralph Pennell's house. Then perhaps that escape was, in fact, something that was orchestrated uh, on her behalf. But, uh, yeah, it's another thing that we will never know. <laughs> right, right, yeah. And as she faced trial, she had a lot of things going her way. The sheriff, for instance, put up the period equivalent of bail money for her, didn't he? Yes. Uh, so uh, that's not unusual either, though. Um, it, and a number of them did. And she, she got uh, some of her kinsmen to help her out as well. And a number of um, some of the local elite stumped up bail for her and also for her steward, um, Robert of Cleetham. And yes, um, wh- what happens is when the sheriff arrests someone in his locale, he is then generally held responsible for them and often will take them into his house and kind of keep them under house arrest or sort of vouch for them until they come back to court. Maud was taken into custody by um, Richard Willoughby for most of the trial, who's the marshal. And then when she's bailed out, they can't just sort of let her go. So presumably Thomas Kydale then had to vouch for her and bring her back to court because there were a number of court dates. And she was tried a couple of times, the first time for murder. They couldn't, the jury couldn't find her guilty of murder because there was no evidence. And she, you know, she said, no, it wasn't me. It was, you know, these two lads, both of whom said that they were not guilty Uh, So they indicted her again for aiding and abetting. And again, they couldn't find anyone to testify against her and they couldn't come to a conclusion. So they they the actual verdict is not guilty because there is no evidence. So if this was a Scottish court, it would be not proven not not guilty and um, because it's an English court it's not guilty they tried to get her back a third time on uh, a similar charge and the third time the jury um, found that they couldn't it, it they couldn't try her a third time because a verdict of not guilty even if it was not guilty by you know, lack of evidence had already been recorded and so the case was thrown out of court. So they tried really hard to get her for something. Um, And if they'd actually got her on any of those charges, she would have been burned. Wow. This is very, yeah, this is very, very serious because this isn't just murder. It's murder if a man kills a woman or a husband kills, but not if a a husband kills his wife, that's murder. Um, If a wife kills her husband or a servant kills their lord, that is petty treason. 
um, and that is the sort of domestic basis for high treason um, for the for the count of high treason, which is against your king or your country, but in medieval period was against your king specifically. And that wasn't, you know, it wasn't um, the other way round. It wasn't like, oh, it's petty treason because this is like, you know, attacking your king. The household unit is the important one. And so treason is a, is a, a thing because it is like if um, a wife were to kill her husband or a servant was to kill his master. That's what it's like when you attack your king. So do you see which way around it is? Um, so this is sort of the medieval mentality. So petty treason was a, a, a thing, but it was a sta- it's a, a statute of Edward III that crystallised this. And it's the first case of its uh, kind to be tried under the, that statute, um, which makes it quite an interesting case. But there are several other cases um, much, much earlier as well, where the same penalties apply and wives were found guilty of killing their husbands. Um, Juliana Murdoch was one um, who killed her husband, Thomas Murdoch, because she was, in fact, having an affair. Um, And uh, the person that the knight, well, the lord that she was having an affair with was imprisoned for a while in the Tower of London. And he got off for some reason because he didn't actually do the killing, presumably, Um, although he he was accused of sort of egging her on to do it while she was burned. And I think that was in 1316. Um, so much, much earlier. And there are a few other examples as well. If you're a man and you're found guilty of petty treason, you're hanged, um, but you're drawn to the place of execution on a cart. And it's a, a public uh, a public hanging for you. Um, so that's what happened to Richard Guise and Robert Cook, who are both found guilty. Um, so they were drawn and hanged. And there's the little um, note in the margin of their indictment where the scribe has just written in the margin that the outcome, which is drawn and hanged. Uh, yeah. Did they ever point the finger at Maud or were they silent about her participation? Nope. Both of them, both of them said that they were not guilty and they threw themselves on the mercy of king and country, basically. And that's all they said. Hmm. So, I mean, somebody had to go down for it. That's the other thing. Like, you know, it's impossible for a household of, you know, that many people, about 16 people living in the same small. It's not a big manor. It's not. It's a very, it's a modest sized manor. It's it's, um, only got a few rooms. It's it's small enough uh, that you've got, you know, you've got a pantry, you've got a buttery, you've got a kitchen, you have a courtyard, you have some stables, you have a hall where you can entertain, um, you have a a room for guests, uh, a chamber for guests, and then you have the chamber for the lord and lady. And that's it. It's not a big place. And it's adjacent to the church. There is still a manor in Scotton, which is called the Old Manor. And confusingly, that is not the medieval one that we're talking about. The medieval one that we're talking about doesn't exist anymore. But there was an uh, an archaeological survey done that um, found where it was. And it's very near. It's basically uh, built a stone's throw away from the parish church. So it's very near the village. Um, And so it's very difficult for anything to happen without everybody knowing about it. And yet only two people 
were accused. And the jury didn't buy that either. So the jury tried really hard to get a number of the other servants tried for murder. One of them was Augustine de Morpath. We know absolutely nothing about him either. Um, And we don't know why. We don't know why they particularly wanted him or why, you know. They also wanted John Barnaby of Beckingham, who was the Chamberlain, um, who was the only other person to have the key. And they tried to get him as as well. And they still couldn't. um, First of all, they didn't know where he was because they didn't. uh, None of these servants showed up to their court dates. But also the jury have this list of about six or seven people that they think um, are responsible for this murder. And yet the only people they've got and the only people they can get hold of are Richard Guys and Robert Cook. Um, and those are the only people that Moore says, no, 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 it, none of the others, only these two. And it can't possibly have been just those two because of, you can't you can't possibly do all of that without waking everybody else up and everybody being complicit in it you know and also cleaning up and all of that like it's it's not possible for for just two guys to have done that on their own and like everybody just slept through it or whatever and had nothing to do with it that's not that's not likely so the jury tried their best to get as many people done for this murder as possible and i mean even though it was obvious, it must have been obvious to them at some point that they were not getting out of this alive. They just stuck to their guns and went, no, not guilty. And absolutely everybody who was indicted, including the steward, um, just said, nope, I'm not guilty. I'm in no way guilty. Do what you want. And didn't didn't say anything. And so it that just sounds um, like it. I don't know, like you could read it as um, they're just very committed to um, being bribed by their superiors, I guess. (laughs) You know, if it was if it was a conspiracy that was orchestrated only by Lady Maud and the sheriff and, you know, Sir Ralph Paynell. um, What you know, if you're if you're saying, oh, it depends who you're afraid of, I suppose um, that could work um, if you're keeping them quiet through fear. But then if you're going to die anyway, you know. Depends. Are you going to tell anyone? Are you going to to not? Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know, or try and run away if you've been if you get released or or something. But you know, uh, or it was a conspiracy that the servants themselves were. You know, they had a very good reason to protect each other, and that seems to be maybe what they were doing. Uh, it's the question of who who might they have been protecting by their silence. Um, uh, you know, do they have each other's backs? Do they have a particular person's back? Did uh, Richard and Robert just draw short straws? It's like, well, someone's got to be. You know, someone's going down for this. Which of us is it going to be? And maybe if you say not guilty, maybe you'll get released. Maybe you'll get away with it. You know. So it's it's a, it's a very interesting. It's a very interesting one. Um, yeah. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so like you already stated, this is a time and place where murder ran rampant. Why is this particular crime so important, so studied by historians? Well, I mean, it's not very, <laughs> it isn't very studied. <laughs> um, it's, 
It's mainly important, I think, from a, pers- from a slightly drier perspective of legal historians, because as I said, it's one of the first cases where um, the statute of petty treason was used. And so it's one of the first um, cases to be tried under that statute. So it's a very good um, kind of example of how medieval justice sort of operated with that statute in mind. But also, it's just it's just a very interesting it's a very interesting case, I think it's because of the melodrama around it. Um, and that was picked up in the 1930s when um, Salem first brought it to attention. So the review, H.M. Uh, Cam's review of Salem's volume on the Lincolnshire uh, legal cases that she'd transcri- transcribed and compiled and um, she wrote a, a lengthy introduction focused on this case um, as part of his review and and said it was, you know, just this fascinating melodramatic uh, kind of event that was very worthy of further study. Um, And bear in mind as well that the 1930s was the golden age of detective fiction. And Cam's review uses that language and deliberately makes these comparisons and says, well, you know, the modern detective couldn't fail to um, spot, you know, all of these sorts of clues and uh, and says, well, you know, a modern jury wouldn't have acquitted uh, Lady Maud. And so really sells and buys into this kind of... Um, domestic disharmony and the you know the scarlet woman sort of thing and the corrupt sheriff and all of that sort of um those glamorous stereotypes right and right, i think yeah. that's just a very appealing uh, just a very appealing narrative um because it does play into all of those things and it it taps into those um you know that that image of the sort of the Lady Macbeth figure, and you know the the Sheriff of Nottingham figure, and and yeah. it's all very romantic, and it's all very, you know, Ivanhoe, and <laughs> all that sort of uh, all that sort of thing. And I think that I think historians and scholars can be guilty of uh, romantic imaginations as much as anyone else, <laughs> right? But yeah, um, yeah. and. Um, but it's just the way that going forwards, that sort of, if you like, traditional narrative, that traditional interpretation of events um, has never really been challenged. And it's just been accepted as, uh, and I think largely because people assume that Salem had more evidence for that theory than she actually had. Um, and she was very much presenting it as a theory, but it's, um, I think was picked up as oh well that's what must have happened and so it's been uncritically cited. There's even a, a short biography of Maud's third husband, John Bussey, who was one of Richard II's favourites, and he outlived Lady Maud and was executed then when Bolingbroke came to power. But in that biography of him of of Bussey. You have the biographer talking about the notorious Lady Maud um, who murdered her first husband with the help of her young lover. And I assume that that means Richard Guise, which is interesting because, of course, that's not what Silem said, but maybe that's what the biographer assumed. But that's another really interesting idea because, again, you're, you're assuming a lot of things about <laughs> all of these people, and no, none of which you can prove. Well, well, this has been great. Thank you for taking some time with me. 
Uh, I do want to point out that you have a blog called Going Medieval, and you are on Twitter as well. Um, yes, so I'm on Twitter at MedievalMJJ. Um, I don't tweet very often on that account, though. So, <laughs> um, but I do. Um, I, yep, yeah, you can you can kind of find me at my Going Medieval blog. I also publish fiction under CM Rosens, and I have worked with Romancing the Gothic project, doing a short two-session course on this case, um, and that's where I open it up to people um, who are interested in creative writing and that sort of or his, historical fiction and that sort of thing, um, and we uh, look at the case together and then try to have uh, come up with a creative, uh, people are encouraged to come up with a creative response to it, which is uh, a lot of fun. Um, so that course ran last year, um, just sort of a, a two session course. Um, and if you go to romancingthegothic.wordpress.com, um, which is run by Dr. Sam Hurst, who's a colleague of mine who's in now in uh, Liverpool University, you can maybe sign up for future courses if that's of interest. I also run an eight-week version of the course with a more sort of scholarly academic kind of bent to it, where we look at the 14th century uh, society as a as a whole um, through the lens of the murder. So using the murder uh, and using the case as a way of opening up discussions around 14th century English society at all levels. Um, so that's uh, at Cardiff University, um, and that's uh, usually run in the spring term. So through the um, Centre of Continuing and Professional Education. So that's something that anyone can sort of sign up for. Um, and it's uh, a course that's open to people who are not members of the university. Well, excellent. Thank you so much for your time today. No, you're very welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Again, my guest has been Melissa Julian Jones. Her book is called Murder During the Hundred Years' War, The Curious Case of Sir William Cantaloupe. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow.